0: Welcome to this episode of the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. The Greenville Oaks Church of Christ seeks all who need Jesus and together are becoming His fully devoted followers, encouraging and equipping people to love God, love people, and serve others in an ever-growing way of life. Find out more about Greenville Oaks or connect with us online at greenvilleoaks.org. And now, on to this week's message with Lead Minister Colin Packard. church it's been a good day of worship already i'm excited for the message that i get to deliver uh, this morning especially with our kids in the room we're so glad that you're here and if you have your bibles or your parents have their bibles nearby or maybe their phones tell them to open it up tell them to scroll to the place in luke chapter 10 that i want to read from right now it's a story about mary and martha who are friends of jesus and so i want to read this from luke chapter 10 verse 38 The Lord answered, you were worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. When I read this story, I went back probably to my second or third grade year uh, in Sunday school. I still remember the teacher at the time. And as I was thinking about the story, I thought, you know, some of us need to go back to that moment. Some of us need to go back to the telling that we remember maybe early on. And so I want you to watch uh, with me, uh, maybe a reminder of the story that a lot of us may have learned growing up.
1: One day, Jesus and the disciples were traveling and they stopped in a town where a lady named Mary lived. And Martha. Here's Martha, and here's Mary. They invited Jesus to their house. And when Jesus got there, Mary sat down to listen to Jesus. But while she was sitting and talking, Martha was scurrying about. She was very busy, she was getting ready for. Sinners and making sure her house was just right for Jesus. But she worked so hard and was so very busy that she looked up and she said, Lord, do you not see that I am doing all the work and Martha is not doing anything? Tell her to help me. And Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. Only a few things are important, perhaps just one. And Mary has chosen to do the right thing, and I will not take her away from that. Sometimes we get super busy at home or at school with sports, and we get busy with our friends or playing Xbox or playing outside, and we forget to spend time with Jesus, don't we? Sometimes we forget to pray. And listen to her and read our Bibles. Sometimes we forget those things because we're so very busy. But Jesus wants you to remember it's really important to spend time with him and not get too busy.
0: As I considered what Samantha said, I think that's exactly what this story is about. There's a sense in which you can read Luke chapter 10. And it can be about this balancing act in our faith between doing and being. Right? In this story, Martha is the doer, and Mary is the one who, I don't know how you say that, is uh, being. She's the one who gets being, right? And as I thought about that, I realized that really Luke 10 can be read that way. That's a really good way to tell the story. Because at the beginning of Luke 10, there's a story about Jesus sending out all of these disciples who've been following him. He has his 12 disciples, but there's actually about 72 that seem to be people that are really committed to the way that are going to be sent out. They're going to go on mission, telling people about the kingdom of God and healing people of diseases. Pretty remarkable stuff happens on this mission trip. And so this is a story at the beginning of Luke 10 about doing, right? About going out on mission. The story after that is also a story about doing. It's the story of the good Samaritan. After this teaching of the law comes to Jesus, Jesus tells this story about two religious people that pass by on a road, a guy who's been beaten up and, and they don't do what they should. But then this Samaritan of all people shows up and, and does uh, what the, the Christian life calls to, to care for those who are in need, to bandage up his wounds and to take him to a, uh, an inn where he can heal up. In fact, at at the end of that passage, I want you to hear the words exactly from Jesus' mouth. Luke 10, verse 36 and 37. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Another story about doing. And so uh, here we have two stories about doing. But then what follows is this story with Mary and Martha where... Martha's busy, she's doing, but she's not learned to be, to be present with Jesus, to receive. And so there's a sense in which that's a great way to tell this story, is that the Christian life is a balancing act between prayer, between spending time before God and committing to the mission that God has given to us, to being about the work of God in the world. This morning, though, I want to press us to look even deeper than this first reading, it's not a bad reading. It's just that when we spend time being with the text, sometimes things come alive in ways we never imagined from the ways we were first taught them. So I want us to look a little deeper at this story. Maybe there are things we'll find along the way that'll be a call for us in the days ahead. Let's pray as we open uh, the story more closely uh, to the lens uh, that God gives us. God, we thank you for the story about Mary and, and, and about Martha. We thank you for the disciples they were, for the, the way that they spread your word, for the way that their house was a place of relief for Jesus in that day and I pray we can be just as hospitable in our own day to those who are longing for places of safety, for places of hearing the good news, for places of healing. I pray this morning you would pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. It's in Jesus name that we pray and everyone who agreed said amen. Over the past few weeks we've come to see Who Jesus is and what he does in his ministry. Jesus is an itinerant rabbi, which means he travels around teaching what the law is really all about. He's on the move from town to town. Now, why is he on the move? I want you to think about this for a moment. There's probably a couple of reasons. One is he knows that God is calling him to certain villages, to certain towns, to places to interact with people, to tell the good news. That's part of it. But I have to wonder if part of the reason Jesus keeps moving around is because, well, Herod's on his trail. I mean, from day one, Herod has wanted to kill this baby boy who was the king of the Jews, apparently. And he's been on his trail and his son has been on his trail ever since, Herod Antipas of Galilee. So when we talk about Jesus' death and what will end up happening at the end of this journey, if I'm rooting for the the ending for any of you, I'm sorry ahead of time, but we'll get to that story about the death and resurrection later on in this series. But when we talk about Jesus, we often think about the death, about the purpose of Jesus' death. Why did Jesus die? What did it accomplish? And scripture tells us a lot of things that Jesus' death accomplished. Jesus died as a sacrifice for our sins. Jesus died to reestablish the relationship between sinful human beings and a holy God. Jesus died to reconcile and restore us to God. Jesus died so that we might have everlasting life. These are the kinds of reasons we often give for why Jesus died. But I seldom hear us talk about what got Jesus killed in the first place. And I hope over the past few weeks You've begun to get a glimpse into the radical following of God that Jesus does in the world. Jesus goes around from town to town healing people, pronouncing uh, the arrival of the kingdom of God on earth. It's not accidental language what Jesus uses when he begins his ministry. He says, The kingdom of God has come near. That language of kingdom is volatile language, it's a loaded term used right under the nose of other kingdoms, right? I mean, Herod is leading in this time. Herod, the father, was there at the beginning of the story, and now Herod Antipas is leading, and he's over the kingdom of the, of the Herodian kingdom. But, but all of that ruled over Galilee and Judea, Judea. But beyond that, in a larger way, the Roman kingdom is at work as well. See, kingdom was a loaded, volatile, political term that had all kinds of ramifications in the first century world of Palestine. And it's the reason that Jesus has had a bounty on his head from day one in his life, because he comes to establish a new way of being in the world, a new kingdom. The most powerful man in the land is threatened by this, and he has a large army at his disposal, and he wants to make sure that Jesus, uh, if he's going to defy Caesar, is going to come to a bitter end. So this most powerful man in the land, this itinerant rabbi is on the run from, but he's not running scared. He's running with a message of good news for all the people, not just some of them. And that message is a cause of frustration to the religious leader, leaders in Jesus' day as well. See, Jesus is a rabbi who heals with the power of God and preaches with an authority that others have not heard before. Jesus is a threat both to the political machine of his day, but also to the religious leaders and machine of his day. And we'll see over the next few weeks as we move toward Jesus last week in Jerusalem and toward Easter that the religious leaders and political leaders begin to conspire to get rid of this Jesus and the threat that he is. It's ugly, and, and it ought to caution us against any kind of alignment that the church may seek to have with political authority in our own day. And it's in the midst of this growing chaos and threat that Jesus is invited into the home of Mary and Martha. So imagine if Herod is out after Jesus and he's seeking him down, imagine the target that Mary and Martha are putting on their backs to have Jesus into their own home. That's interesting. Mary and Martha are some interesting characters. I want to point that out to you from Luke 10, but also if you have your finger you can move over to John 11. I want to point us out some things there as well. But first in Luke 10:38, it's referred to this house that Jesus invited into as Martha's home. Now, this is the 1st century. A woman's testimony isn't even useful in a court of law at this time. It's interesting that the resurrection is first attested to by women in this story when that wouldn't have been seen as any kind of witness that anyone would have accepted in those days. We're 1900 years at this time before women can vote and a house is identified as Martha's house. That's unusual. So if you flip over to John 11, you see more. We discover there that Mary and Martha are the sisters of a man named Lazarus who gets raised by the dead a little bit later on in the story, by the way. What's interesting, though, is in John 11, the city of Bethany is described in a particular way. I want you to pay attention. This is is John 11, verse 1. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister, Martha. Now, after he's raised in this chapter, at the beginning of chapter 12, the city's going to be described as the city of Lazarus, which... You know, I guess if you're raised from the dead, that does change some things, doesn't it, right? I mean, it would be hard to be a city that's not known for that when Jesus comes to your town and raises. But before that, in chapter 11, this isn't described as Lazarus's town. This is the city of, of Mary and Martha. And that's strange in a patriarchal, hierarchical world of first century Judaism. Another unusual fact. But watch what happens as Lazarus dies in verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Mary, Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. It's interesting this fact when Lazarus dies, it's not just the people in that surrounding town of Bethany that come and support Mary and Martha. People are coming from two miles away in the big city of Jerusalem to care for these women. These are women that apparently are known in that time, in that space. There's something about these women. In fact, when the story gets continued out, we find out that Lazarus is buried in a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Which is a sign of wealth, because if you owned a plot of land substantial enough to have a burial cave, it meant that you were a person of means. You were doing all right for yourself. But it's not just the notoriety or the fact that Martha and Mary have a city that's known for them or a house that's Martha's. No, beyond that, it's the faith of these women that's significant. In fact, when Jesus shows up after Lazarus has died, Martha still has this faith that says to Jesus, "Look, if you just been here, Jesus." he wouldn't have died. And you can still raise him. There's this buoyant hope that Martha has that often we don't see when we look at just this story, right? We tend to disparage her as someone who's less than what Mary is. Martha's a woman of faith. And the same is true for Mary. In John 11:28, 28, Jesus asked for Mary to come to him and she's got the same incredible faith. She says, look, if you'd been here, Jesus, this wouldn't have happened. He would have been alive. In John 12, the next chapter is the same story that's told earlier in Luke that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the anointing of a sinful woman. Well, in John, what's interesting is she's not necessarily known as a sinful woman. She's known as Mary. Mary is the one in that story in John 12 that ends up anointing Jesus' feet with this expensive perfume that costs 300 denarii, which is a year's salary. So apparently Mary has no problem offending Judas and the rest of the disciples with her act of generosity and care, and devotion. These are remarkable women. These are women of courage. These are women of faith who are joining up with Jesus while Herod is out to kill Jesus. They're fearless. They're faithful. Now, like I said, we tend to judge Martha in this story. We tend to judge her as someone who, well, maybe she's like most of the older siblings in the room. Those of you who are kids, I'm wondering if you kind of think about your siblings this way. Often, the first in any family is often has a lot of responsibility on our shoulders. I say that because I am a firstborn myself. And, and so I tend to think about trying to do everything and care for everyone. I, I put a lot of burdens on myself. And sometimes I look at my younger siblings and I wonder, why don't they care for things as much as I do, Right. And maybe that's a little of the tension that's going on in this story is Martha's the responsible one. This is her home. She has a great wealth that had been left to her, maybe by her parents. We don't know the situation behind it, but we see Martha in this way and we tend to say, man, if she would just have the devotion that the younger sibling has, it isn't an interesting in scripture how over and over again, the younger sibling receives the blessing. And it seems like that's the story here as well. But in every sermon or lesson I've ever heard on this story, I, I've always heard it focused on Martha's obsession with making sure that everything's taken care of. Her obsession over a clean home and that all the dishes are, are cared for and maintained. This, this text, though, leads us to certain assumptions. Jesus says that Martha is distracted. She's worrying and upset about many things. So I don't want to uh, not, not pay attention to that. But I do want us to pay attention to a phrase in verse 39 I hadn't really noticed before that I dug up some stuff on that I'm excited to share with you. So look again at verse 39, Luke 10, verse 39. It says there in the first half of that verse, she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. The line I want us to key in on over the next few moments is the line, she sat at his feet. Now what's significant about a line like that? And so... I started to look around and I realized that Luke as he writes his gospel and the follow up in the book of Acts uses this term on four different occasions. This story right here with Mary and Martha, but then in three other places and I thought they were really instructive. In fact, these are the only places in all the Bible I can see this phrase used at all. So I want to go first to Luke chapter 2. Go with me if you would to Luke 2. It's the story of Jesus at the temple when he gets lost from his parents and Remember what he's doing? He's there at the temple. I want to read the story again. Listen closely for that language. Luke 2, 43 and following. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. So when the parents show up and find Jesus, where is he? Sitting at the feet of these teachers. It's an interesting story. It's as if Jesus wants to become a rabbi, and this is the position, this is the place you take when you want to become a teacher of the law like these people. The the second example comes from a story I preached on last week in Luke chapter 8. So go with me there. It's the story about a demoniac who was healed. And in Luke 8, verse 34 and following, I want you to listen again for that language. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Now, why is this man sitting at Jesus' feet when he gets dressed and in his right mind? Well, if you read on in the story, what we find out is that this demon-possessed man wants to follow Jesus. And Jesus says, no, I don't want you to follow me. I I want you to go back to your home, and I want you to tell the people there the story of what's happened to you. But it seems as if he wants to become Jesus' disciple. In order to signify that, he sits at Jesus' feet. The third example comes in the book of Acts. Acts 22 Verse 3 is a description of Paul's earlier life as he's becoming a rabbi himself or a follower as he is raised up in the Jewish household. Listen to this uh, description of Paul from Acts 22, verse 3. As I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. Now, when you read that in the NIV, the translation I'm reading, it doesn't sound like there's any uh, connection with this story about sitting at the feet of But the Greek actually says it this way. I was educated at the podos, the feet of Gamaliel. In other words, when Paul wanted to become a rabbi, he goes to this well-known school and Gamaliel was this well-known rabbi that was respected in that time. And when he goes to be a rabbi, he sits at the feet of Gamaliel. So in Luke 10, when Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, she is taking the posture of a disciple wants to follow in the steps of rabbi Jesus. When you sit at a rabbi's feet, it means you were becoming their disciple. This is not a passage about Mary not wanting to do the dishes and maybe wanting to sit up front for a Bible study with Jesus. No, Mary wants to join a revolution. And as a general rule or practice in that world, women did not sit at the feet of rabbis. This was fairly unheard of because you would only sit at the feet of a rabbi if the rabbi thought that you could do what the rabbi was doing. And apparently Jesus is fine with it. Not only is he fi- fine with it, he tells Martha she has chosen what is better. He apparently is thrilled with Mary's decision. Which makes me wonder, is this why Martha is saying something to Jesus? When she says, tell her to help me, is she really saying, Jesus, please rid Mary of the notion that she can become a student of yours. Because we all know that's a man's work. This is the kind of story that would have been thoroughly disruptive in first century Judaism. This is shocking stuff. It's the kind of stuff that would fracture the social order and the way of doing things. The tension comes when Jesus puts those kinds of things in people's heads because that's not how things are done. And over and over again, Jesus steps in. He says, well, they are now. And that shouldn't come as a surprise if you've been paying attention over the last five weeks or so in our lessons. Because for the past past five Sundays, I've told five stories about Jesus doing the same thing over and over again. And I can see the religious leaders in each of these stories saying the same thing. You remember these stories? Eating dinner with tax collectors and sinners? That's not how things are done. And Jesus says they are now. Commending the faith of a centurion? That's not how things are done. And Jesus says they are now. Allowing a sinful woman to touch you, of course you're not a prophet. That's not how things are done. And Jesus says, they are now. Going on a mission trip to heal a demoniac in Gentile territory next to pig farmers, that's not how things are done. And Jesus says, they are now. And allowing a woman to sit at your feet as if she can become a religious leader too, that's not how things are done. And Jesus' response is, they are now. Jesus has come to planet earth on a mission. He's come to demonstrate the kingdom of God through his healing ministry and power and to declare the kingdom of God through his authoritative teaching. And the kingdom of God has come to bring in a new social order. That's why he's here. He has come to reorder the fundamental way society was structured and to change it so that those who were disempowered would be allowed uh, into this kingdom to lead alongside him. He's not wanting a people who announce the hope of an eternal kingdom where things will be as they should be in the great by and by. He's announcing the arrival of the kingdom that has come to disrupt things here and now. It's the very rearranging of things that Jesus had had sung to him as he was in Mary's belly during that Magnificat at the beginning, at the end of Luke chapter 1 about a world that would be changed. It's the rearranging of things that the prophets had pointed to in the exile. It's the rearranging of things that his synagogue sermon had almost gotten him killed for in Luke 4. And the Sermon on the Plain in Luke 6 describes as well. It's the rearranging of things that helps him to say no to Satan when he says, if you'll trade me your worship, I'll give you the political leadership of the kingdoms of this world. Jesus isn't confirming the status quo of the Jewish synagogue and the Jewish temple. The temple is going to come crashing down and the curtain in that temple is going to be torn into. And all of this is preparing this church for what's going to happen when the Holy Spirit of God descends at Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is going to remind the people of a prophecy that had come during exile to the prophet Joel. Do you remember this? In one of our favorite chapters in Acts chapter 2, listen to Peter's words, remind us of scriptures from centuries before. This is Acts 2 verse 17. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. You see, when the spirit of God comes, Gentiles will be used. When the spirit of God comes, gender is not supposed to be the defining uh, reality of who can prophesy. When the spirit comes, all kinds of people are going to join in this movement. And that means the church is going to have to get more comfortable with Ethiopian eunuchs and centurions named Cornelius and dealers in purple cloth named Lydia and leaders named Phoebe, breaking barriers as God grows his church. Because if they continue to draw lines of exclusion as they have in the past, they're going to miss out on the amazing people whom the spirit of God is going to draw into their presence in the present moment for the work that God would have to expand his kingdom. And that was a daunting word in the first century for those who were present in the Jewish synagogue and temple. And it's still a daunting word that needs to be heard in the American church in 2019. Because if we choose to, like Martha, keep the rules of social decorum and demand that the Marys of our world stay in their place, we'll miss out on disciples whom God wants to use in powerful ways. And if we choose to exclude people in an effort to play it safe, we'll miss out on the messiness of the kingdom that God always brings when Jesus is present and the Spirit is in a room. Jesus did not come to defend the status quo. Jesus did not come to please and keep the religious rules of his day. Jesus came to turn the world upside down. Jesus came to start a revolution. And anyone who wanted to sit at his feet and become his disciple was welcome to do so. This isn't a time, church, for us to play it safe. We've lived in a world before where we had the luxury Of division being something we could accept. We had the luxury of excluding certain groups of people and because we were growing and things were going well and it wasn't anything we should have accepted. It was never the movement of the spirit, but at times we've allowed that to go on. And and it was that luxury of growth that allowed us to do things that weren't fully in line with who the spirit of God was and moves us to be. But we're in a time where that luxury is no longer possible. We're called to partner with all who call Jesus Lord. We're called to invite all those who want to sit at Jesus' feet and together repent and say, we are not on the right path, God. But it's only through your movement in our lives that you can move us and align us with your will and with your kingdom. And God, would you bring it today in the same way you have in the past? It's time for the church to welcome all who want to follow Jesus. It's time for the kingdom of God to come on earth as it already is in heaven. That's our prayer, church. Amen. Is that God would do what God wants to do to break down any barrier that's needed. This is the problem of the church in Acts 15, isn't it? You remember that story there? They're at the council of Jerusalem. They're trying to figure this thing out because the spirit of God has come and said, look, I want you to go out into all the world. I want you to, my my spirit's going to come on you. You wait in Jerusalem, but when it comes, you're going to go and be my disciples and my witnesses in Judea and in, in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And they don't do it, do they? They end up staying in Jerusalem. They end up staying too long. They're waiting because Jesus told them to wait when the Spirit of God had come. And you know what it takes for them to launch out beyond that? It takes persecution. It takes the Roman Empire destroying Jerusalem in AD 70 for God's mission to really explode outside of it. And I'm wondering if on our own day, if maybe we're waiting. And God may just bring his persecution to his church in order for us to do the thing we've always been called to do. That's to expand his kingdom and it's to free his people and it's to sit at his feet as Mary did in front of Jesus. So the invitation this morning is to take that posture in front of Jesus. For all of us not to stand up as leaders that are somehow uh, deciding who's in and who's out. No, that's God's job to do that. It's for us to sit at Jesus' feet together, all pointed toward him, asking, God, what is it in my life that needs to be shaped and changed so that I can align myself with your will for the world? And how do we partner with others to do the very same thing? Because God is on the move, and nothing we can do can stop that. We praise God that he still does these things. Let's pray as we close this morning. Father, I thank you for the lesson that I learned growing up about Mary and Martha, because it seems in my life that I'm rarely in balance between being and doing. And God, and just I don't know if it's my personality or if it's the tradition I grew up in or just the burden I've placed on myself. I thought doing was so much more important than being, and you're aligning that in my life in these years uh, over the past few years, God, and I'm grateful for that movement, and I. I want to be present like Mary is in better ways. God, for others of us, that balance looks a little different. We feel like we've been in a place of being and we've not been freed or maybe we've not taken a step to do as we should. And I pray that we would be a church that also does, that lives out your reality in the world, your kingdom, and isn't status quo people. We we challenge for your justice and your mercy and your goodness to be in this world as your spirit brings those gifts. But God, beyond uh, that understanding of this text, I I realize that sometimes we have stood in the way, God. We have prevented people from coming to you. We have drawn people on the outside that were desperately wanting a place at your feet. I pray, God, in the days ahead, we would figure out ways to all sit at Jesus' feet, acknowledging our sin and asking you to cleanse us and to point us back toward the path of righteousness, the path toward justice and mercy and faithfulness, God, so that others might see the goodness of what you're doing in our day and our age. God, we beg for your spirit to be here because we can't do this alone. We are grateful for that promise that when we make disciples, we teach them to obey everything you've commanded, but the promise at the end is that you are present with us. Your spirit never leaves us in this mission. And so, God, we beg you for this revival, for this work of your spirit, we submit our lives, God, to being at your feet and then moving to action in the ways you'll call us in the days ahead. We love you, God. We are grateful for the opportunity to sit at your feet. God, all of us were once on the outside as Gentiles. All of us were on the outside of your story and somehow you have invited us in. You've grafted at us into this tree and we, for that we are forever grateful. So may we extend that same welcome to others who we understand because we have also been those on the outside. That your good news would find them as it's found us. And I pray this in the name of Jesus this morning. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. We hope this message helps you in your walk to find real significance in Jesus. Connect with us on Twitter. You can find and follow us there at Greenville Oaks. Discover more about the Greenville Oaks Church online at greenvilleoaks.org.